My name is Erin Lasley. I've traveled many different roads in my life. I've been a law enforcement officer and first responder in the United States Coast Guard. I've worked in a couple of psychiatric hospitals, but now I'm a professional historian and podcaster. I've also had an interest in true crime for most of my life. In this podcast, I study some of the most notorious crimes through the lens of a historian and analyze what may have inspired criminals, investigators, and even society during the commission of those crimes and investigations. Join me as we look into the history behind the crime. Hello friends, welcome back to another episode of the history behind the crime. I finally got my internet fixed. I don't know how many hours I spent online and on the phone with my internet company trying to convince them there was a problem. I also don't know how many times I lost my cool with them. Finally, I fixed the internet myself. And you want to know what the problem was? It was me. Yeah, it, it was all me. I I fully admit I'm not I'm not computer savvy, but I should have noticed that OneDrive was trying to upload all my files to the cloud at once. And I feel like I really should reach out to all those techs and profusely apologize for being a crazed Karen, which I admit that I am every now and again. And um, I, I own it when when I am a Karen. So if, if any of you are out there listening, I'm I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Also, I want to uh, apologize. Uh, I am getting over a uh, head cold, so I may sound nasally. And there may be a lot of editing involved because I like may break out in a coughing fit. So that's why I sound a little bit more stuffed up. And there's going to be a lot of, you know, me um, sniffing. Um, not sniffing, but you know, like all that sniffling. There we go. Uh, yeah. So lovely cold. It is cold and allergy season. Uh, yeah, a little bit of house cleaning. I wanted to let you all know that there is only one regular episode left remaining in the season aside from this one. Um, before I take a break, but I will throw out some bonus episodes. So you guys don't forget about me after the season finale. I will be back in May uh, with new episodes, new guests, and maybe some new equipment. I am I'm still coming to you inside my closet right now because there's better acoustics. But uh, anyway, so the break will um, also give me time to pre-research and pre-record. So maybe I can finally, finally get back on a schedule. I owe you all at least that. I also want you guys to keep emailing me. I get so excited every time I open my email and see one of you have reached out or see that one of you is following me on Instagram. Uh, if you if you have emailed me or followed me on Instagram, thank you. I appreciate it. You make me feel so special and so loved. Uh, anywho, uh, speaking of people reaching out, I already got a few ep uh, emails concerning the last episode about Heather Heyer. For those of you who did open your hearts and and contact me for open and honest communication, thank you. 
that was my attention for the episode and I have enjoyed emailing back and forth with you guys. We may not all agree, but dang it if we're not talking to each other about it. And that's that's just it's so great. As always, if you have any questions, stories you would like to share, episodes episode ideas or you know, general comments about how awesome I am, you can reach me at the history behind the crime at gmail.com or Instagram at the history behind the crime. I pondered for a while whether I wanted to do this episode or not. Honestly, everyone else has done some take on it. And there's so much information about it that most everyone in the true crime community has a good handle on it. But I still decide to do it because I feel compelled to. I feel like it's a rite of passage in the true crime podcast world. But I want to look at it a little bit differently. Not through the eyes of a psychopath who managed to give a whole culture a bad rap. But through the eyes of his followers. I want to take a closer look at the followers of Charles Manson and what made them take orders from a deranged maniac. In order to do that, we have to look at history, psychology, and remember what it was like when we were young and impressionable. We'll get to the history in a bit, but I want to take a moment and say this. I don't feel sorry for those women at all. And I'm glad those convicted of those heinous crimes either died in prison or remain there to this day. I feel sorry for their victims, the families, and the girls who were lured into the cult. And I don't think you can be redeemed in this life for the viciousness of those crimes. That's between you and your maker. But there should be no forgiveness from society. No forgiveness and no parole. They knew what they did was wrong before they even did it, but they still went through with it more times than once. In this episode, there may be instances when I might seem a bit soft-hearted with these women, but that's only because we're trying to understand why they did it. In the end, they were vicious killers, and sometimes I'm disappointed the state of California could not put them to death. I know that sounds harsh, But that's the way I feel sometimes. California in the 1960s was trippy. Indeed, a lot of places in the United States were changing as a counterculture took a hold of American youth. Yes, we're talking about hippies today. Tie-dye wearing, pot smoking, Peace and love making, Grateful Dead listening, put a flower in your hair, hippies. They were one of the most historical countercultures in the United States, and many people today even refer to themselves as hippies. Though I think most of them are more of the granola eating, make your own soap, free the titties, Bernie Sanders kind of hippies, which is totally groovy, man. The hippie counterculture inspired a whole generation of music, sexual liberation, a reevaluation of gender norms, and a semi-acceptance of recreational psychedelic drug use. But the hippie movement didn't spring up overnight. It was a movement a few centuries in the making and took place in a lot of areas around the world. 
When you think of early hippies, visions of bohemians and wandering poets and artists should spring to mind. Walt Whitman, Henry David Thoreau, and other transcendentalists are considered hippies of the 19th century with their beliefs of humanity, women's rights, nature, and even communal living. That kind of fell out of favor by the late 1800s, though there were certainly still people out there that wanted to commune with nature and lived in group settings, especially among Eastern European immigrants. Fast forward to the 1950s. After World War II, a lot of returning vets just wanted a good job, a decent home, and a nice family. And many were content with that. But, like in a lot of other eras, a growing number of younger people were discontent with the idea of leading the same seemingly boring lives their parents led. Enter the Beatniks or Beat Generation. Yeah, those black turtleneck wearing, poetry writing, finger snapping, Jack Kerouac reading, jazz listening young hooligans. These hipsters, if you will, we're not lining up for the nine-to-five, carbon-copy, three-bedroom-in-the-burbs kind of life, and they even turned their nose up at the establishment. They tired of war, the so-called hypocrisy of government, materialism, racism, society's rules, and gender norms. Why did they have to conform to society? As the decades spilled over into the 1960s, the counterculture of these beatniks just grew larger and louder, especially as the baby boomers got older. The beatnik movement drew in a lot of Eastern Asian beliefs, especially Buddhism, and really got into the self-love, love of humankind, and generally treating others with kindness and respect. Beatnik communities were especially popular in Greenwich Village, New York, and San Francisco. The beatniks of the early 1960s were also introduced to LSD for the first time. And this is when beatniks and communal living groups started to, tra to transform into hippies. Not all of them, but a vast majority. Black turtlenecks gave way to tie-dye and leather fringe, and jazz gave way to psychedelic rock and folk music. I think a lot of us have a pretty good idea of what and who hippies were during the 1960s. In fact, I know that some of you listening were hippies, and to a certain extent, you still are. Hippies just weren't one group. The entire counterculture was made up of several different kinds of hippies. There were your eco-friendly, vegetarian, commune-living groups, the anti-Vietnam, war-protesting, make-love-not-war groups, the folksy Joan Baez drumming on guitars and traveling the country in VW buses, and the tripped-out, turning-on, tuning-in, and dropping-out groups. Many times they blended into each other. But there certainly were different and various cultures within the counterculture. What they all had in common was the need not to conform, just like the beatniks. Men grew out their hair and grew beards, and you should understand, clean-shaven was the standard for men in the 1960s. And women gave up confining clothes for loose skirts and pants, and even went without bras. Shocking! The entire culture was... You know, just be you, man. And for the most part, 
hippies were basically young, white, middle-class people who were done with what societies expected them to be. Many of these hippies were done with their suburbia life and started to flock to the West Coast, California. It wasn't just hippies heading to California. We all know that. It's always been a destination for people looking for warm weather or to become a movie star. Just start over again. At least that's what the movies made it sound like, right? In early 1966, a lot of hippies were moving to the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood in San Francisco. There were cool people there, cheap apartments, back in the 60s there were, and an awesome psychedelic pot shop, which became the community center for hippies. The hippie anarchist group, The Diggers, opened up a free store nearby that was a one-stop shop for threads, food, and even medical care. And bands such as The Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane moved into the neighborhood too. This was where it was happening, and by 1967, which was also the Summer of Love, over 100,000 people in the hippie movement had taken over the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. It was a mecca for young people and musicians. But after a while, there wasn't enough to go around, even though everyone was more than willing to share. Some decided to try their luck in Los Angeles. Charles Manson and his followers were some of those people. And they left San Francisco and headed down south in late 1967, where Manson took everything good about the hippie movement and twisted and perverted it for his own sick pleasure. My original intention was not to concentrate a whole lot on Manson, because he's not the reason I want to do this episode. His followers are. But, unfortunately... To understand his followers, you have to understand Manson. Personally, I would describe Charles Manson as a deranged dickhead, which he was, but that's a simplistic description. How to describe a man who inspired others to commit murder? He was simply an evil guru from hell. In the episode about Jonestown, I outlined the characteristics of a cult leader and just like Jim Jones, Manson fit those characteristics to a T. Charismatic, narcissistic, dominant, demanded obedience, arrogant, psychopathic, delusional, persuasive, controlling, exploitive, envisioned himself as the underdog, and he was a visionary. I think Manson was born with some of those traits, like being a sociopath. But the others I think he came by on his rough road through childhood and early adulthood. Manson spent his early childhood not wanted by his mother, who actually tried to sell him a few times for beer. And he spent most of his childhood and adulthood in juvenile institutions and prison. He gained skills in these institutions, like being able to talk kids into beating others up, lying to get what he wanted, and learning how to play a pretty mean guitar. But prison molded Manson and helped him foster a fuck-the-world attitude. Manson quite simply wanted women, musical fame, and to watch the world burn. And he would do that by way of Southern California. I know what some of you may be asking, because I've asked the same question too. How does a short, greasy little shit like Charles Manson, a massive following, comprised mainly of young women, let alone get them to kill for him? 
Well, it was drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And also characteristics of his more hardcore followers. Specifically, the characteristics of Patricia Krenwinkel, Susan Atkins, and Leslie Van Hoyten. Krenwinkel was born to a middle-class couple in Los Angeles and had a fairly decent childhood, aside from being bullied in school for being overweight and a little bit more hairy than the average girl. This caused her reported depression and low self-esteem, and it didn't get any better when her parents divorced, divorced when she was a teenager. And divorce was still seen as a taboo in the 1960s and carried a heavy stigma. Krenwinkel met Manson when she was 20. In the evening they met, Manson gave Krenwinkel the attention she desired, pretty much said she was beautiful, and then they had sex that same night. After that, Krenwinkel never returned to her family. Susan Atkins grew up in both Northern and Southern California and was the daughter of two alcoholics. Though her family was fairly middle class, there was plenty of upheaval throughout her childhood. Atkins lost her mother when she was 13, bounced between relatives, before her father finally relocated her and her brother to Southern California, and then abandoned them. Atkins had to work to support her brother, and at the age of 19, met Manson in San Francisco. She had been evicted from her home, and Manson welcomed her with open arms into his family. Leslie Van Hoyten also grew up in a middle-class family near Los Angeles, and did pretty well until her parents divorced when she was 14. After that, she dived into drug use, was a frequent runaway, became pregnant, and was forced to have an abortion by her mother. She tried to find herself after that and became a hippie living in communes until she met Manson. None of these women had stable childhoods or families and all suffered from low self-esteem, some drug use, and craved a place to belong, a family, if you will. And they all met the characteristics of people who joined cults, people who are in dire need of approval, those who are seeking an identity, those who are seeking meaning, those who are followers and not leaders, those who have mental health problems, people who are highly suggestible, people who are angry, and people who have low self-worth. Manson saw these things in these women and used that to his own gain. Let's be honest with each other, especially the women who are listening. A woman's teen years and early adulthood is not easy and it's, it's pretty damn confusing. We felt uncomfortable in our bodies and many of us searched for acceptance even if we received unconditional love at home. We didn't really know what we wanted except for what society told us we should want. Society told us how we should act and what we should look like and we got into the dumps if we couldn't do that and suddenly you're 17 years old and you're dating a 22 year old restaurant server because he's too mature to get a girlfriend his own age but he tells you that you're pretty and you're smart and you're like well sure okay okay well what i'm trying to say is that teenage or young adult women are more easy prey for people like manson mainly because these women we just want to fit in somewhere but krenwinkel Atkins and Van Hoyten were special because they had issues that were more than surface deep. And Manson knew that. I like how journalists 
Aja Romano described Manson as follows, quote, Manson, like many psychotically predatory men whose violence has hypnotized American culture, was really just an everyday misogynist. He wasn't a product of 60s counterculture. He was a master manipulator of it. One who used the free love ethos of the time to prey on a cadre of troubled, abused young women who continued to carry out his thirst for violence even after he was in jail. He carefully studied religion as a tool of control and manipulation, especially Scientology, along with social engineering. He sought the advice of other career criminals, including pimps, who taught him techniques for successfully coercing and breaking down the resistance of women under his control. End quote. Simply put, Manson was a master manipulator. While in San Francisco, he convinced scores of young women and men that he was a Christ-like figure basically taking the idea of free love and preaching to these men and women that they should give him all their love, to give themselves completely up to him. There were lots of people who were seduced by Manson and gladly jumped on board. When Manson and his groupies left San Francisco, they traveled down to Southern California where Manson used the lovely qualities of the women in his group to obtain places to stay food, and more followers. Some of the women even managed to hook Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, who was more than happy to let Manson and many of the women stay at his rented house in Los Angeles in exchange for sexual favors from the women and Manson's family. Wilson footed the bill for his house guests, introduced Manson to record execs, including Terry Melcher, who, along with his girlfriend Candace Bergman, lived in a house that would later be rented to Roman Polanski and his wife Sharon Tate. Of course, Manson and his clan were so rowdy that Wilson's landlord ended up evicting the group. By August 1968, Manson and his family relocated to Spawn Ranch in LA. In exchange for use of the property, Manson pimped out his female followers to the ranch's owner. The ranch was a derelict movie set once used to film westerns and was the perfect place for Manson to isolate and brainwash his followers. No running water, no electricity, just abandoned buildings, lots of LSD and marijuana, sex, and the promise that Manson would help his followers survive the upcoming race war. The big draw of lots of cults is convincing followers that the end is nigh. Jim Jones and David Koresh are probably two of the most notorious doomsday cult leaders and convinced their followers it was only through Jones and Koresh that they would find salvation. Manson was on their level. Manson was actually preaching helter-skelter long before Jim Jones and David Koresh became household names. What was Helter Skelter? First and foremost, it was a Beatles song from the band's White Album. It's a, it's a raunchy song about amusement park rides. and Actually, I find it more suitable for the grunge era of the 1990s than I do for the Vietnam War ballads of the late 1960s. Manson heard it as a warning for an apocalyptic race war where black Americans would rise up and kill all the white people. 
Well, this is what he told his followers, at least. He also told them if they survived the war, Manson would be able to take over the country because black people were too stupid and they would need a white man to lead them. So he was misogynistic and racist. So picture it. You're a young woman, far away from home, no family support, living on some abandoned movie set and later on in the desert. There's barely enough to eat. You're being sex trafficked, sometimes beaten, frequently taking huge hits of LSD, listening to your pimp talk about a race war, and then practically getting raped after a night of psychedelic drugs and apocalyptic preaching. I think that would mess up most anyone. And it only got worse as Manson grew angrier with the world. I don't want to go into too much detail about how Dennis Wilson and Terry Melcher screwed over Manson. Wilson stole one of his songs and Melcher reneged on a recording deal. And with a psycho like Manson, things got bad. In fact, Manson's threats during the summer of 1969 scared Melcher so bad that he and Bergman moved out of their home and rented it to young film director Polanski and his pregnant wife Sharon. It was during this time Manson's ranting and ravings turned darker, if that's even possible. He told his followers that it was going to be up to the family to jumpstart Helter Skelter. I honestly don't know if Manson actually believed in Helter Skelter or used it as a way to get the family to do what he wanted. But in July 1969, well, it got real. Sometime during the late 1960s, music teacher Gary Allen Hinman befriended the Manson family and allowed some of them to stay in his home. Many within the family thought Hinman was wealthy and, needing money for Helter Skelter, Manson sent family members Bobby Boussoulet, Mary Bruner, and Atkins to Hinman's home in July 1969 in order to convince him to turn over his money and assets to Manson and join the family. The three members held Heinemann hostage for two days until Manson showed up, tortured Heinemann, sliced off his ear, and told Boussoulet to stab Heinemann to death. Before they left, one of them wrote political piggy on the wall in Heinemann's blood and drew a Black Panther paw next to it with the intent to frame the Black Panther Party for Heinemann's death. It was the opening salvo of Helter Skelter if you want to believe that theory. The thing about Beausoleil is that he was just like Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Hoyten. A young 21-year-old guy brought up in a middle-class family, ran away from home a few times, struggled to find his identity, played in some rock bands, and moved in with Hinman before joining Manson's group. There is little indication Beausoleil was violent before his interactions with Manson. But Beausoleil admired Manson because the guru gave him purpose and girls. He also knew that Manson would beat him or make one of the other men beat him if he didn't follow orders. The police didn't have a too difficult time figuring out who killed Hendon and arrested Beausoleil on August 6th. The thing is, Manson worried Beausoleil would turn on him and try to come up with a ruse to shift police focus from the family back to his helter-skelter plan. 
at least that's one of the theories behind why Manson sent Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel to the home Melcher once resided in. His orders? Kill everyone in the house. This is where I always pause. Between the time the Manson members left the ranch and when they arrived at the Tate house, what did they talk about in the car? Did they discuss what they were going to do? Did any of them have a moment of doubt? I want to know if any of them actually stopped to really think about what Manson ordered them to do. Like, did any of them have a revelation of, you know, screw this, I'm not killing a bunch of innocent people for a psycho who beats and rapes me? Or were they so devoted to the greasy psycho gremlin that they happily stabbed an eight-month pregnant woman nearly to death, then hung her from their house's rafters and left her to die? Chances are that they were more than ready to kill for Manson and wanted to kill for him. Kayla Bross, who studies at-risk youth, wrote the following, quote, Because Manson was easily able to entice his followers in that manner, what they thought about his ideologies didn't matter. It didn't matter how destructive or dangerous they were. That all got thrown out the window. His followers were no longer focused on Manson's ideologies. What they were focused on was doing whatever they needed to do to continue to have the acceptance Manson presented them. Manson was able to very successfully brainwash all of his followers into believing that his own ideologies were the only correct ones. He made it so that he did all the thinking for the entire group. Manson also made his followers think that he had their back and was there for them, even when no one else was. This same technique tends to be utilized by gangs in modern day society. End quote. Manson himself said the following, quote, Making people do what I want is the easiest thing in the world. All it takes is making them think we have something special and everyone else is deluded. If that doesn't work, make them think they're not doing enough or threaten to take their family away. Easiest thing in the world. End quote. In a New Republic review of the 1974 book Helter Skelter, The True Story of the Manson Murders by Vincent Bugliosi and Kurt Gentry, the article's author exclaimed, quote, there was something else in Manson that could turn the Manson girls from borderline psychotics into psychopathic killers of unparalleled cruelty, end quote. On the evening of August 8th, two days after police arrested Boussoulet, the gang of four drove to Melcher's former residence and killed the five people they found. Sharon Tate, men's hairstylist and hair revolutionary Jay Sebring, heiress and social reform advocate Abigail Folger, Folger's boyfriend, Watchtech Verkowski, and 18-year-old Stephen Parent, who was only there to sell a clock to the caretaker. As they left the house, Atkins wrote pig on the wall in Tate's blood. On the evening of August 10th, Manson directed the same followers, plus Leslie Van Hoyten and Steve Clem Grogan, 
to a house owned by Leno and Rosemary LaBianca, who were wealthy, but far from the Hollywood elite. Manson directed and participated in the binding of the couple, but left his followers to commit the violence. After killing the pair, the family members once again wrote chilling phrases on the walls in blood, including Helter Skelter. Atkins and Krenwinkel bragged about the killings. As my mom would say, to make a long story short, police finally caught up with the Manson family and arrested Manson, Tex Watson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Hoyten for the murders. And that's when the circus began. The country was already horrified by the Tate-LaBianca murders. Sure, the United States was used to seeing violence play out on TV with the Vietnam War and the multiple assassinations during this decade. But the vicious murders in California was not something the country saw very often, especially when the country saw news footage of Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Hoyten brought to and from court. How could these three seemingly sweet young women commit such horrific crimes? These girls seemed lovely wearing their feminine frilly dresses and holding hands and singing. In reality, they had no remorse for what they had done and still took their orders from Manson, despite all of them being locked up in jail. When Manson shaved his head, Manson's female groupies, including Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Hoyten, did too. When Manson carved an X into his forehead, the women did the same. All throughout the 1971 trial, disruptive outbursts from Manson and his supporters, both inside and outside the courtroom, made the nightly news. Manson and the women never took the trial seriously, and his followers outside were just as convinced Manson would be set free. Charles Manson was convicted on seven counts of first-degree murder for the Tate-LaBianca murders, and later followed by two more convictions for the deaths of Heinemann and a spawn ranch hand. Manson, Watson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Hoyten were all sentenced to death. Though their death penalties were commuted to life sentences the following year with the abolishment of the death penalty in the state of California. The state of California resentenced them all to life with the possibility of parole. But Manson and Atkins died in prison. Watson was never granted parole. And Krenwinkel and Van Hoyten were granted parole several times. But California governors overturned those rulings. While some of Manson's followers remain loyal, such as Squeaky Fromm, who tried to assassinate President Ford, others eventually distanced themselves from the cult leader, including Watson and Beausoleil. Criminologist and feminist icon Carlene Faith helped deprogram Atkins, Van Hoyten, and Krenwinkel starting in 1972 and showed the women that they were not objects, but women who could liberate themselves. The three responded well to the program and became model prisoners. They earned advanced degrees and commendations for helping their fellow inmates, and the staff at their prison gave them positive character statements at parole hearings, even if those came to nothing. Other women in Manson's group eventually opened their eyes to how Manson treated them. Diane Lake, 
who was introduced and sexually assaulted by Manson at the age of 14, said the following, quote, I feel very strongly that it's only by the grace of God that I was protected throughout this, and I was a victim. I was abused. I was neglected. I was abandoned. I hope that my story will help tell a cautionary tale, unquote. Since the Me Too movement really picked up steam, a lot of attention has shifted from the same old Manson family narrative of, you know, oversexed girls looking for guru to instead focus on a serial sexual predator brainwashing at-risk young women and girls. Find it interesting that we don't blame the girls and women victimized by Warren Jeffs or Jim Jones, but yet society sneered at the women caught in Manson's snare. And I think maybe that's because some of those women committed murder and we never had a chance to see them as victims. While Manson was in prison, he certainly gained probably a lot bigger following than he did when he was out of prison. But that is something I want to explore later on in another episode. I certainly don't want you all to think that I'm making excuses for these women. What they did was wrong and brainwashed or not, deserve to spend the rest of their life in prison for their crimes. I respect that they have tried to atone for their sins, and they're probably not a danger to society anymore. But their crimes are beyond heinous, and there is no redemption for that in this life. So for this episode, I wanted to embrace my my own inner hippie with all that's going on in the country right now i want to encourage you all to just be you and i want to ask you to fill other people's buckets you may be wondering what that means a few years ago one of my favorite commanders talked about a children's book called have you filled a bucket today by Carol McLeod. The book is about when we are kind to others, we fill their buckets, which is obviously a metaphor. And when we're kind to others, we fill our own bucket as well. But when we do or say mean things, we are dipping into buckets. It's a very simple message I think many of us have forgotten. Many groups right now are oppressed and under attack because people don't understand them or simply feel uncomfortable around them. There is a slew of bucket dipping going on right now with people saying doing harmful and hurtful things and maybe maybe they don't realize the damage they are causing. I'm honestly not trying to be all kumbaya here but maybe take the time to lift someone up rather than drag them down. Even if you think you were the nicest person in the world, do more. Reach out instead of hold back. Don't let political or religious boundaries hold you back from supporting those who you normally do not associate with. It's fine if you don't agree with someone, but that's no reason to tear them down just to make yourself feel superior. This is something I have to try hard at too. I need to open my ears more than I open my mouth and not build walls between me and other people. 
but I think we can all start small. I mean, even if we start with the compliments and build from there. So I want you to ask yourself a simple question every day. Have you filled someone's bucket today? And that does it for this episode. Just a few more weeks until CrimeCon Cruise. And I've been chatting with my my roommate, Hey BC. Uh, we've been getting to know each other and talking about what we plan to do on the cruise. I plan on getting sunburned. And that's about the only absolute I have right now. But remember, I want to hear from you guys. Tell me your true crime stories or ideas for future episodes. I am all ears. You can reach me at, yes, the history behind the crime at gmail.com or on Instagram at the history behind the crime. So I'll be back with the season finale in a few weeks. I've already started researching it and I'm already creeped out by it. So until then, y'all, do me a favor. Take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Bye.